4. So if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 4. And we're moving along in the Word of God. And we come to the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. A lot of people, when they think of Cain and Abel, think of sibling rivalry, right? You know, you think of two brothers pulling each other's hair. You think of, as a parent, just all the things that you've seen kids do, right? I remember when I was growing up with my brothers, we used to fight like cats and dogs. I made my little brother so mad one time that he hit me in the back with a hammer. I made my older brother so mad one time that he pushed me down a flight of stairs. And the sad thing is I did worse things to them. Well, now my brother Rhett, he's... uh, 6'3", he has a black belt in mixed martial arts, so we get along really good now, and I hope he doesn't remember half the things I did. But to think of this story as just merely a typological example of sibling rivalry that went wrong uh, really just doesn't do the story justice. When you look at it, it's interesting. Abel doesn't speak once. In fact, most of the dialogue that takes place in Genesis chapter 4 is between Cain and God. And so this story most fundamentally has to do with a breakdown in Cain's relationship to God, not his relationship to Abel. Abel just unfortunately happens to be the victim of Cain's rage turned towards him. He's collateral damage. It was William Shakespeare who once said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits, their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts. So while we have many roles to play in life, the important thing is that we let God write the script, choose the cast, and also direct the action of the story. If we disregard him and try to produce the drama ourselves, then the story ends tragically, and that's Cain's sad story that we're going to see this morning. Cain is Adam and Eve's first unglued son, and he makes an unglued mess of everything because Cain wanted to do everything Cain's way. He didn't want to do it God's way. It has well been said that there is a little Cain in all of us, and a lot of Cain in most of us. Who hasn't taken control of the pen and wanted to write the story for God. Well, as we consider Cain unglued this morning, we'll see the pitfalls that led to his downfall. We'll see how imperative it is to let God hold the pen for your life. Let him write the script. And we'll also see how often God comes alongside and says, listen, if you start listening to me today, if you will let me, I will from here forward, write a better script for your life. That's the powerful truth we see here this morning. And some of you are probably thinking, well, that sounds kind of good. I could sure use a better script moving forward. And if you will let God, and if you will listen to God, he's willing to do that. So pick up the story with me, verses 1 through 5. The text tells us that Adam knew his wife Eve. And this doesn't mean that they had a good conversation. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's a precious thing when you hold a child for the first time, isn't it? Andrew and Christy Lauk said uh, that their little daughter, Leighton, 
was the most perfect daughter in the world. They're all the most perfect children in the world, aren't they, when we first hold them? They grow up, but <laughs> that's okay. Verse 2, And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Let's stop there. Now, I'm always interested when I'm working through a passage of the Bible to discern why is the Bible choosing to tell us some pieces of information but not other pieces of information. So here we have an announcement of Cain's birth, and then, boom, we're into adulthood. There's no conversation of uh, whether or not he was a good boy. Was Abel a good boy? Were they both good boys? Did they pick on each other? Was Abel the bratty, annoying little brother, and Cain the responsible older sibling? Nothing. We have no idea. Just a brief mention of what they do in a reporting of one worship encounter with God. God accepts Abel's. Uh, he rejects Cain's. Why focus on this one little act of worship? Well, already you're asking the wrong question. Because no act of worship is little in God's eyes. Every Sunday when you come to church and offer your hearts to God matters. Every time you sing a song of worship, read a sermon, uh, wake up in the morning to pray, set your clock just right for daylight savings time so you're not one of the people missing this morning. All of these choices you're making every day from moment to moment to tune God out, to focus on Him, to give Him your best, to offer Him the leftovers, none of it's little. None of it is benign. It all leads our hearts somewhere. And if worship matters so much to God, then the real question we need to be asking is, what is God looking for? Well, God is looking for faith. Faith is the heart of the matter in Genesis 4. Hebrews 11.4 makes the central issue very clear. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 6 of Hebrews 11 makes it even more clear. Without faith, it's impossible. Not possible, right? To please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And you probably have thought to yourself before, well, boy, I just wish God would make things kind of clear. I wish I knew what God wanted from me. Well, he has. It's very clear. The main thing that God wants from you is he wants you to live a life of faith. Begins here in the Bible in Genesis chapter 4 as we move forward to the story of Abraham. We see a man who lives by faith. The rest of the Old Testament talks about people living by faith. We come to the story of Jesus, and Jesus says to Thomas, Do not disbelieve, but believe. As you make your way into the rest of the New, uh, the New Testament, the Holy Spirit makes it clear the just shall live by faith. That's what God wants from us. Faith is the supreme currency in God's economy. It's the only thing that we'll spend in his world. So how do we demonstrate faith? Well, one way we do so is by offering God our best. 
Did you know that God wants your best? He wants your best at anything you do. He wants you to give him your supreme effort, your supreme thoughts with it. He doesn't want it to be just kind of a matter of secondary importance to you. Look at verse 4. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now that word fat portions could be translated choicest, best part of, abundance. Notice that the passage doesn't make the same type of comment about Cain. Cain here is fulfilling a duty Abel was moved in the heart by God's goodness to offer up his best to this great, glorious God who had created everything and who had provided for him and who intends to every detail of his life. David demonstrated that the right heart of worship is to offer sacrificial, costly worship to God in 2 Samuel 24, 24. He said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. That cost me nothing. God's not interested in the leftovers. He's unimaginably rich. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't want the hand-me-downs from you to him. He wants your best. It's like a little child. You know, my children on my birthday woke me up, and they gave me a bunch of presents for my birthday. And Zach pulled out this little picture that he had drawn, and it was a bunch of guys running up a volcano and one guy was getting shot off the volcano to his death, which just made me think, what were you thinking for my birthday? (laughs) But I decided that he just loved me and he wanted to make a good picture for me. Now, there's nothing that my children could probably give me that would add materially to my life, and yet that was the most precious gift that I received all day. Why? The heart was right. They loved me. They thought about me. They were so excited to present their best to me. The Butterball Company set up a Thanksgiving hotline to answer questions about cooking turkeys. One woman asked if she could use a turkey that had been at the bottom of her freezer for 23 years. The Butterball expert, and how's that for a job title? told her it would probably be safe if the freezer had been below zero the entire time. But the expert warned her that even if the turkey was safe to eat, the flavor would likely be deteriorated and it wouldn't be worth eating, to which the woman said, well, that's what I thought. I guess I'll give it to the church. (laughs) Well, that is an amusing story. It does very often hit very close to home. Remember, we shouldn't be so quick to say, yeah, that Cain, oh boy, what a bad character. He didn't have any faith like his brother. Just remember, what if your life was a biblical reality TV show? The story of Cain was not written so that we could feel morally superior to him. I'd never murder my brother. I would have given God my best. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things were written down for your instruction. The idea here is that God wants his word to get off the page and into the human hearts. He wants us to understand what we're doing. So what if your life was a biblical reality TV show? How would people describe the worship you gave God last Sunday? 
what would the little biblical side note say? Would it say she came joyfully, offered her heart and faith, gave God her best? Or would it say she came because she had to, she spent the whole service thinking about what she was going to do when she left, and she didn't give anything to the offering because, you know, vacation's coming up. Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Friend, the Bible is always asking you the same question. Where is your heart? Not your heart yesterday. Not where is your heart going to be. Where is it right now? Is it close to God? Far? Where is it? I want you to see something very important from this text. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Worship is the headwaters of your life. Worship is the headwaters of your life. Everything you are, everything you think, everything you do flows out of these headwaters. Here's why. Because the most important thing about you is how do you relate to God? That's why we get this single reporting of a single act of worship. Moses is just backing this up to the headwaters of Cain's life, and he's saying, down here is murder, but up here is worship that went wrong, and it leads to here. Look at verses 5 through 7 again. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. The desire is contrary to, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we see there right away the true disposition of the heart. Cain grows angry, uh, very angry. Literally, the Hebrew would read that it was hot towards him, hot towards God. Now, we've talked about anger before. There's a difference between a righteous anger and a sinful anger. Cain is obviously sinfully angry. Why do I know that? Well, because he's angry with God. And that, my friends, is never justifiable. You hear people say, well, God's got big shoulders. He can handle it. I don't see anywhere in the scriptures where the scriptures say be mad at God. Nowhere. It's not in there. So he is letting his anger go unchecked. And anger unchecked is an incredibly destructive thing. A woman once went up to her pastor and said, I occasionally lose my temper, but it's over very quickly. To which the pastor replied, so is an atomic bomb explosion. But think of the damage it causes. So is a cyclone, but think of the destruction it leaves. So is a bullet fired, but think of the death that it causes. So how's your anger? Is it in check? And if not, the next question to ask yourself if it remains unchecked is, where is it going to take you? Nothing just ever kind of sits around and remains where it is. We're always heading somewhere in the heart, aren't we? We're going to some type of destination. So God 
interfaces with Cain here. He sets the standard for how you would provide counsel to someone who is struggling, particularly someone who's struggling with a a, a sinful thought process. Notice that he engages Cain in two ways here. He directly confronts the thought process, the anger that he's dealing with, and then secondly, he describes the outcomes. If you continue, this is where you head, or if you go this way, this is where you will head. Now consider both for a moment with me. Think about the idea of confrontation. Confrontation is necessary here because Cain believes that Cain is the victim. We're not given uh, his internal thought process, but if I was to extrapolate a little bit here, I would imagine that he's sitting there thinking like, oh, look at boy wonder over there, Abel. He's not that perfect. I do all kinds of good things. How come God's going to accept his sacrifice but not my sacrifice? So God comes in and he... Boom! Interrupts the thought process. He starts having a conversation. Cain, you're angry. Your anger isn't justified. I've been clear all along. I require faith. I don't want you to worship me out of obligation and then just go on and do your own thing like I don't exist. I want your heart. He's trying to help Cain to see clearly. That's what wisdom and discretion, and counsel is all about. We're all walking around with foggy lenses, and when God's word comes in and intersects with our life, he clarifies the vision so that we can see reality as it really is. Have you ever found yourself kind of stuck in a thought process? You're convinced you're right. There's no other way it could be out of the history of rightness, of right things. This is surely the right thing. Then you have like a counselor or a friend, a member of the family or your spouse. And they ask you a pesky, little, annoying question. Ever had that happen? Maybe it's just me. I know you guys are perfect. But why does it have to be that way, right? They ask you that. Are you sure you're seeing things clearly? Are you being honest with yourself? Asking questions is a powerful tool for helping someone get, as the master counselor herself, Lillian Edmonds, likes to say, get unstuck. That is why God is talking to Cain. If God didn't care about Cain, he wouldn't be asking questions right now. Now, I want you to see that even in your darkest moments, God is present. He's dialoguing with you might not be as he's dialoguing with Cain. Cain and God are actually having a face-to-face dialogue here or a voice out of heaven, who knows. But God is talking to you too. How does he talk to us? Well, when we open up his word and read it, God's talking to you. He also, as a secondarily important way, likes to talk to you through Christians. Wise counselors serve as warning signs along the road. They say to us, listen, the way that you're acting and talking right now just doesn't jive with God's word. I mean, I've lived a little bit of life. I'm a great observer of outcomes, and I'm telling you that if you continue along this route, it's going to be destructive for you. You've got to think differently. The book of Proverbs tells us to embrace wise counsel probably about a million times, if not more. Maybe 10 million might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's one of the core messages of the book. Proverbs 15, 31 to 32, 
The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Now, I'm not talking about some self-certified know-it-all. You know, the person that doesn't have kids but read a book. That's not what we're talking about here. No, I'm talking about wise counselors. People who have deeply invested their life in the Word of God and have lived the Word of God and have the spiritual gift of wisdom. How are your ears? Are they clogged with earwax? They say peroxide works well for that. How do you respond when someone comes to you and they muster up the courage to come and talk about something that is concerning with your life? Do you know how incredibly hard that is to do? Incredibly hard. So that when someone comes into our life and does something like that, we shouldn't reject what they're saying. We should say thank you. Thank you for caring enough about me that you would say that. Because I was heading in the wrong direction. Now God moves beyond confrontation with Cain to describe outcomes. He says, if you do well, you will, be, will you not be accepted? The Hebrew literally describes someone lifting up their face again. So anger had downcast his face. Now God wants to lift it back up. Cain, deal with your problem. You are not giving me your best. Change the approach and watch how it will change your heart. That's a good outcome. Or, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now that, my friends, is a bad outcome. God is saying that sin's never satisfied with a minor victory. Sin has a, a master plan for your life. It's called slavery. You know, the lion isn't creeping behind the bush so that it can just kind of pop out and scare you. It wants to eat you. It wants to completely destroy your life. Sin's not content with you just merely browsing pornography. It wants to completely warp your mind with lust. Sin doesn't want you to just have a hard conversation with your spouse. It wants to destroy the relationship. It doesn't want you to just cheat on your taxes once. It wants to turn you into an unethical person. So that when you give sin an inch, it wants to take a mile with the ultimate intention of destroying you. That's the outcome. Now notice with Cain that there's no response. You know, when someone comes to you and wants to have a conversation and you're not talking at all, you're in a bad place. He has shut off his heart to God's word. And maybe you've been there before, I've been there. You don't want to hear preaching, you don't want to read the Bible. You don't want to pray. There's just walls around the heart. And where is that going? Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The act is as simple as as it is horrific. Brother is used twice in this one verse. It wasn't just an act of murder. It was an act against his brother. That when you looked across 
and looked into his eyes, you saw a little bit of yourself because he came from the same mother and father as you did. And under the Mosaic law, the fact that a killing took place in a field out of the range of help was proof that there was premeditation. I mean, this wasn't a depersonalized act, shooting someone with a gun. I mean, this was violent. This was bloody. Did he crush his skull with a rock? Did he slit his throat with a knife? Did he choke him and watch the life breathe out of his body? We don't know. But one thing we do know, in a moment of premeditated rage, Cain killed his brother. Why? We always want to know a motive, right? Some kind of senseless act of murder where you can't explain why it happened. I mean, that just doesn't sit well with the human heart. I remember the authorities just uh, reeling, trying to find some reason that the, LA, the Las Vegas shooter uh, shot all of those people from a hotel window. They didn't find a note. They didn't find anything. Why would he do such a thing? Why did Cain kill his brother? Simple, really. He wanted to remove the competition he wanted to get even with God. Why does Cain murder, asked Dietrich Bonhoeffer, out of hatred for God? The only way to hurt God was to kill the man whose offering he accepted. It is a sick, twisted logic. But in his raged thoughts, Cain thought that he could get back at God. Now, I want to get the camera off of Cain for a moment for crying out loud. I mean, this guy is a little dark, a little dreary. Let's focus the camera on God for a moment. How's that sound? God has been present throughout this story. And I, I said something along the lines of Cain being the primary actor of the story, but really, anytime you're reading the Bible, God's the main actor of the story. Um, here we see that God has been present. He fulfilled his promise to Eve. She gave birth to a beautiful boy. He's with Cain and Abel. He's relating to them. So that's why he's concerned with Cain's offering. It was fake. Nobody wants a fake relationship. He's involved in this internal descent. And even in the moment of the act, it doesn't say that uh, God was there with Cain. But God is looking on. He's present in the situation. And now, I mean, almost unthinkably, he comes to Cain, who still has fresh blood on his hands, to pursue a lost sinner. Wow. Look at uh, verse 9 with me for a moment. God comes up to Cain, and he says, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So God comes with a question so simple and so searing, where is your brother? It's the second big question in Genesis. He asked Cain's father, Adam, where are you? Now he asks Cain, where's your brother? Where's the one that you were supposed to take care of? Now, does Cain take responsibility? Nope. He denies it. He meets God with that cold wit. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And honestly, if I was God, I would have smoked him right there. I mean, when someone makes a smart, alecky comment like that, it takes me from zero to five, and you guys can go to bed tonight thanking God that I'm not God. <laughs> now, instead, God gets to the point in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood 
is crying to me from the ground, Cain, you are lost. You can't deny it. You might think that you buried the body and hid the blood, but the blood cries out to me. You can't cover it. Now listen, friends. We can take heart in knowing that not one injustice in this world goes unnoticed by God. I want you to recognize that. Every abuser of children, every rapist of women, every murderer, every dictator who believes that he lives above the law commits their act openly in the sight of God. And notice as well who the most offended party is by the crime. God says the blood cries out to me, right? God was the most offended party when Nicholas Cruz entered Stoneman Douglas High School and slayed 17 people. He was the most offended party when apartheid took place in South Africa. The most offended party when in Cambodia they slaughtered millions of people. He's the most offended party when someone sinned against you. Uh, why? Because sin is always an affront on God's right to be God. D.A. Carson describes sin this way. He said it's the degoding of God. R.C. Sproul said that every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt at the throne God in his sovereign authority. And because God is the rule maker, because God sees everything, and because God is the most offended party, then God is also the one who can rightly and accurately administer judgment, and he's the sole one who can do that in each and every situation. So we see here in verses 11 and 12 that he does so. And now you are cursed from the ground, which, was op- which has opened its mouth to receive your blo- brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Once again, the consequence fits the crime. He slays his brother on the ground. The ground will no longer work for him. He kills a member of his family, Family is God's deepest uh, provision for mankind's loneliness. How do you work alongside mom and dad after you killed your brother, right? That doesn't work anymore. The consequence fits the crime. Now he will go and be a wanderer. The text continues, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today out of the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, uh, lest any would find him and attack him. I appreciate these words from preacher and editor Matt Woodley. He says, In this story, we repeatedly find two realities that exist side by side. On one side, there is human sin, and on the other side, there's God's grace and the power of redemption. Almost every story in the Bible, and really our story too, boils down to these two things, sin and grace. But here's the hope. It's precisely out of the mess of human sin that God brings the glory of redemption and grace. How do we see sin here? Well, Cain clings to it, doesn't he? God administers justice. The only person that self-infatuated Cain thinks about is Cain. He uses I and me in that expression of uh, the consequence being too great to him seven times. 
Me, me, me. It's all about me. How's this going to affect me? But God responds with uncomfortable grace. Verse 15 tells us that he puts a mark on Cain so that no one would seek blood vengeance on him for taking Abel's life. Uh, What was the mark? It's hard to say. Whatever it was, though, it was an act of pure mercy. So what does this tell us about God? It tells us that God's patient with us. God is incredibly patient. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If God wasn't patient, we would all have been judged the first moment that we sinned against His holy will. That's it. It's over. But He's patient. He's long-suffering. We also see that no matter what you've done in this life, doesn't get much worse than murder, right? God wants a relationship with you. There is no sin that you have ever committed that is too big for God. He will accept you if you will accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And that's what we sang about all morning, wasn't it? In fact, God is the God who says, return to me. As you read the Old Testament, if you were to make your way to the prophets, this is the repeated theme. Return to me. You're not too far gone. You've not done something to fully and finally be dead to me. The one and only sin that you can commit that will be unforgivable by the blood of Jesus is to live your entire life and breathe your last breath without accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. That's it. Even up to your dying breath, you can return to him. But I want to signal one warning as we close. Don't say in your heart, oh, I understand what the Bible is saying. I know that I need to return to God, but I'm going to wait a while. I'm going to live my life for a few more years, then I'll return. Friends, that, that script never plays out well. It never does. You're still trying to write your own script, and the Bible says repeatedly this theme today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today. Not tomorrow. Not three years from now. Not five years now. Not ten years. Today. If you hear his voice. Because we have no guarantee for tomorrow, do we? I'll tell you, I've tried to predict the future a million times. Like, I bet on the stock market. I've bought lottery tickets. I'm terrible at it. I don't, I don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't even know if I'm going to wake up in the morning and want to brush my hair and stuff. I just have no sense of it. There is only one who has a sense of what tomorrow will bring, and that is God. The only sense of what we know is right now. And if today you hear his voice, the Bible says what? Respond to him. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, as we